Hello, I'm Thurman, Bonnie, secure, and we're here for a, a book tour of the West Coast. We're also here to uh, show you this documentary that's coming up called The First Rainbow Coalition. Uh, and it was made about the, the coalition back in 1960s with uh, uh, Fred Hampton of Black Panthers and uh, the Young Lords and the Young Patriots. And we were the three organizations that started the orig original coalition. And it depicts uh, the conditions in Chicago at that time around the country. And historically, it was the first time really in Chicago that uh, groups and people of multi-ethnic uh, groups got together to fight oppression uh, in Chicago. And it's called the First Rainbow Coalition. So if you're white, you're right. If you're black, stay back. But I don't think the majority know how to live like the white people. Well, like I see, there's a place for them. They have their home place. You can stay there. It's in Chicago, but we have no ghetto, and we have no Negro ghetto. Chicago has the largest concentration of Negroes in an urban ghetto of any major city in the United States. The biggest and most serious problem confronting the city of Chicago is her race problem. You think we're going to have racial warfare? I certainly see that coming. We need to teach the employees we are citizens adapting ourselves in respect. People are, are learning to struggle together, people are learning to fight together. They say I'm black and I hate white people. I'm white and I hate black people. I'm Latin and I hate T.O. I'm Hill and I hate Indian. So we fight amongst each other. We're going to fight racism, not racism, but we're going to fight the South there. When I was young, I did everything that all the other gang members did, and I would get into a lot of trouble. A rough kid. If I was in the House of Correction and the whole Martin Luther King gets killed, and the rioters are coming into the jail in mass. And at the same time, I'm hearing about the Black Panther Party and the loudspeaker in the radio. We're going to defend ourselves rightfully with guns and bullets. And I said, that's what we need to do, like the Black Panthers in the, in the Puerto Rican community. People call me Bobby Lee, Bob Lee. But my birth name is Robert E. Lee Jr. the third. In the black community, it's like naming a Jewish kid Adolf Hitler. You're gonna have a lot of fights. 
how was born in the Houston Civil War. You were told how not to stare at white people, get off and get over when you saw them coming down the street. You were aware that when you left home, you left your community, you could be killed, you could be uh, beaten. Arrived in Chicago, <coughs> now Chicago was no different. You segregated. I'm from a small town in Tennessee, eastern Tennessee. And people ask me why I got into the revolutionary politics, and it's because of poverty. I started to work in the field with my family when I was about three years old. We were very poor. We would uh, pool our money together, and that's how we would eat in the evening. So I came when I was 17 years old. Uh, looking for a better job, uh, better, better life into the uptown community. Chicago was a really important migrant destination. It was attracting a lot of Southern African Americans, Southern whites, and Puerto Ricans from the island. There was this perception that uh, there were really good wages to be had in Chicago they were encountering a white ethnic population that had already been settled there for many decades. We were from Puerto Rico and we settled on the northern part of downtown. Lincoln Park became about 40% Latino. Everybody was neighbors, everybody was family. you were Puerto Rican and you went into an Italian or Irish neighborhood, you can get killed. So there were certain boundaries that we knew, the whole community knew that they couldn't go there. We don't allow Puerto Ricans in this restaurant. You can't be in this beach. The young girls, that's how we began, fighting for our people, a nationality game. And the young girls went looking for the fight. We went to Benny's Pizzeria and demanded to be served for going to the beach and cracking open, open heads with, with beer bottles, just so that we can go to the beach. And then there was West Side Story, the first movie about Puerto Ricans. And so all the young boys went to the Biograph Theater, and that's where we got our colors, the Puerto Rican gang, in the movie. Everybody went and used red dye, and that their shirts purple, and that became our culture. When I went to Chicago, I noticed everything was segregated. Everybody was with them, their own kind. You didn't go into their community. They don't come into your community. And that's the way it was in Uptown because it was Southern white. Well, the uptown area, that's a slum. It was a, you know, a ghetto. It's a series of articles 
came out classifying us as a very dangerous population. We were incestuous, we were violent, ignorant, racist. And that was the first time I had ever been called white trash was when I came to Chicago. Initially, we had gotten together a street gang, young guys who were hustling like anybody. You could not get a job. I had to go in and literally sell blood just to survive. Students for a Democratic Society came into the community and they formed a join Jobs Are Income Now. They were talking about the civil rights movement. So we started getting a political ideology. Trying to help the people in the neighborhood with the landlords sounded better to me than what I was doing. I mean, I wouldn't do nothing. I was with kids running the street. has happened to the neighborhoods surrounding the Negro community. This is the Negro community uh, that is the largest contiguous area of uh, uh, 90 or more percent black population uh, in the world outside of Africa. The segregation in Chicago was locked in. Mayor Daley had used virtually every instrument of government to keep it segregated. Daley who served as mayor from 1955 to 1976, was at his peak, the most powerful, the most influential urban figure in America. From the Cook County Democratic Party down to the precinct captains, it was a well-oiled machine, the democratic political machine. Chicago was known for a long, long time as one of the most segregated cities in America. What Daly did is not to challenge that on any level. And that was very important for him politically because so much of his base were extremely resistant to uh, the idea of blacks moving into their neighborhoods and Daly served their interests. Now is the time to get rid of the slums and ghettos of Chicago. Now is the time we must realize that there must be alliances now between Negroes and white people of goodwill. Get rid of poverty that engulfs so much of our nation. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. You feel you're in a closed society, Dr. King, here in Southwest Texas? Oh, yes, it's definitely a closed society, and we're gonna make it an open society. The way flight went to the suburbs to flee minorities coming into the communities, and Mayor Daley wanted to bring them back into the city. Urban renewal was a racist plan. 
and supported by the federal government with funds. I would hope tomorrow every slum building in Chicago would be demolished and we have a decent home for every family. This is the aim of the present administration and we're going to go through with it. We were just talking on the street corner and at the bars about how the neighborhood was changing in that. And then we found out about a meeting at the <clears throat> Conservation Council. We walked in there, there was a model display. There's areas that are vacant. And these were Puerto Rican areas. And we saw nothing but, but 12 white men there directing the meeting. So we told them no more meetings here unless you have black, Latino, and poor white representation on your council. And they looked at us like we were crazy. So to prove our point, we picked up chairs and started throwing them around, tore up all the plumbing, trash the entire place. We shut down the Department of Urban Renewal for about three months. That was a victory. <laughs> I come from a people in the neighborhood that never worried about trash for many I'm concerned there will be law and order in this town as long as I'm there. What were you doing when this rookie cop hit you? I wasn't doing anything. Police brutality. Police everywhere aggravating everybody. And just any reason to get us in that police station. And they had a, a bench <laughs> with the handcuff on the side. So they can cuff you, beat the shit out of you with a phone book, whatever they wanted to hit you with, as long as they didn't leave any marks. They were free to do their own activities, whatever they want, you know, to treat people any way they wanted to treat them. And we knew that we could either give up or we could fight, so we decided we'd fight. You would get beat up before you even walk into jail. I just got beat up, you know, that was it. And I had to accept, who do I complain to? When King was killed, all of us was affected. Rage, anger. Shoot to kill any arsonist or anyone with a Molotov cocktail in their hand in Chicago. Daly showed his power through the use of his police during the Democratic Convention in 1968. That was Daly. No one lost their lives in Chicago. And all I did was what I thought was my duty under the Constitution and under my oath of office. I've never tolerated brutality. The Democratic Convention, we had seen the hippies being in Lincoln Park. We could relate to that. What was going on in the Vietnam War, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X being killed. Our families being evicted from their homes. All that affected us and awakened us. The young boys started transforming themselves from a gang into a human rights movement. The mission was self-determination for Puerto Rico. That meant that we were powerful as a people, as a nation, to promote a sense of pride for being Puerto Rican. And we wanted neighborhood empowerment. Well, 
what we have to do now is pull ourselves together into a functioning group of people who can go out and rebel against this. See, one of the things that's good about, about the young patriots is they're all interested in the problems they got here. You know, and, and they want to change them. We're going to be patriotic to the community, not necessarily patriotic to the system. That's our way of being patriotic. If we're going to try to help our community, then we are patriots. I'm the deputy chairman of the state of Illinois Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used for capitalism. It's a byproduct of capitalism. Fred was such a powerful speaker that, um, you know, once people heard Fred speak, they were, you know, gone. We want freedom. We want the power to determine our own destiny. That's the first point. We want true education, decent housing. We want people to have fair trials with a jury of their peers. We want to end the police brutality. Pretty much the same things that ring true now, unfortunately. For all of us in the party, Fred Hampton was someone we all respected. The Black Panther Party this time is a political self-defense, uh, military, uh, armed political unit. That's, what, that's the definition of the Black Panther Party. You could touch Fred. He was a servant leader. Fred a lot. And I was very impressed. There's no education program here? Fred came to me as his field secretary. He said, well, Lee, you handle on our side. <laughs> One day, Bob Lee said, hey, man, I want you to take a ride with me tonight. We got to go to this place called Uptown. I need you to be my security man. They were poor, man. I'm talking about sound. You could smell it. See, you could smell a smell. We all went to this uh, community meeting with the JOIN organization. Panthers are here. Are here. Panthers are here. Yeah. Fuck time. Okay. We come here with our hands open. You can't supervise us where we can be of help to you. What do you want when you communicate? What do you want here? Is, are you afraid of pain? You want to take brains off now? Or what? There were a lot of suspicions about the Black Panthers that they were gun-carrying terrorists. It was a scenario that I had never been in before. I see some guys with Confederate flag patches, I was a little concerned. The thing we got to deal with is concept of poverty, man. We got to do recent color things. See, there not fit for dogs to live in, but humans have to pay $144 a month to fight. They sold, they sell building off the new ownership. What we need is understanding among the people, collision between the people to stick together and take them owners and cut them over here in the lake somewhere. Right on. <laughs> Once you realize, man, that your house is trunking with rats and roaches, you know, same way a black dude's house is, you know, once you realize that, that your brother's been brutalized by the cop, the same way the west side and south side is, you know, once you realize that you are paying taxes, taxes for the cops to whoop your ass, you're paying them 
Bobbley turned out to be quite an organizer. And he says, Yeah, my name is Bobby Lee, but my real name is Robert E. Lee. <laughs> and we all laughed. He said, You got to be kidding me. Who, who's here want to see this thing move? <laughs> right on. Well, the first thing we talk about now is how we go organize. You know, where we go organize. And, you know, we're all going to get run out of here eventually. That was a good meeting. It was. It got everybody. It got everybody riled up. It was a good start to a coalition. We worked very, very hard in the uptown community. It was two weeks. We went there every day, every night. Here's a white community asking for help from the Black Panther Party, man. I knew that this was serious. to the 18th district police station as a community we locked the doors we pushed them to the side and we spoke just so it was a non-violent takeover of the, of the a police workshop meeting the very next day it came out in the news and that's when we met for it happened we were talking about how we can work together then they told us about the young patriots on the north side we said that we would work with anybody from coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind we call a coalition meeting. <laughs> to bring them all together. It came together, man. We all sit together. Boy, you look good, boy. This here is a rainbow coalition, but and there's white, brown, yellow. Red and black. Didn't matter what color you were, the war doesn't win pride. The Rainbow Coalition was about uniting communities so that we can make revolutionary change. Our communities were all struggling for the same cause, in unity that was forced. Urban Southern whites with Puerto Ricans and blacks. I don't think there had ever been anything that substantial in any urban environment. What was going on in your neighborhood? Uh, the same thing was going on in my neighborhood, you know? And how are you going to change that? You ain't going to change it by hating the people in the other neighborhood. But the fastest way to change that was for those neighborhoods to come together. Housing issues, police brutality, just being fed up. That's what we could all agree on. The Panther Party in Chicago, they're not only organizing the young lords, they're creating coalitions with uh, another vanguard revolutionary group called the Young Patriots. Poor white people have begun to relate to the 10-point platform and program of the Black Panther Party. The young Appalachian white people. That flag meant blood and murder. Who the fuck wanted to be around that flag, man? Let's be realistic now. I just want to deal with black and black liberation. Everybody gets uptight when a few hunkies get their heads beat. What did they do when we was getting our heads beat? So you guys some pounds could handle it, man. They couldn't handle it. Get out. We always had the flag. We were brought up from the Confederate flag. 
we were trying to confront people on their racism, you know, wear the flag with the black power or free UE, and it would spark up conversations. The contradiction makes people think. Fred Hampton understood what we were trying to do, and, and therefore he welcomed it into the Rainbow Coalition and allowed us to even go to rallies wearing that flag. If you go organize with folks, you first respect the top back. We started going around with him. He took us under his wing and basically helped us, you know, guided us. We said to Pig, Daddy, Hammerhead, Hanaran, Pig, Connors, and the rest. No more brothers will be taken from us without calls. Class consciousness cuts across all kinds of strata. For poor white people to be working with poor black people was unheard of. Black people and white poor people and red poor people and Puerto Rican poor people and Latin American poor Rican people of uh, our poor people of all descent, they had them caught up in their movements based on racism. When the Black Panther Party stood up and said, if we don't care what anybody said, we're going to fight racism, not racism, but we're going to fight the solidarity. This was during the peak of the black power era. The revolutionary struggle that we were envisioning was to eliminate racism. And in order to eliminate racism, we couldn't practice racism. We came together as true brothers and sisters to stand up together. The motto of the Black Panther Party was all power to all the people. Not all power to some of the people, all the people. Children were going to school hungry, and there were no federal programs for them. And the Black Panther Party was the first group I saw that was talking about taking control of your own destiny. Instead of just asking people for something, it was like, okay, if our kids are starving, then let's give them breakfast. They showed us the importance of the programs. Set up a free breakfast for children program, a free health clinic and dental clinic, a free clothing program, a food pantry, something that the government, Mayor Daly, was not doing. We got the free health clinic. We started working with the coalition and were able to get resources from that to set up a free health clinic. We're feeding 3,000 to 4,000 every week already, and I don't know how many all around the country. We're out there every day and educating. People learn by example. I think I don't think anybody has an argument with that. And I think the Black Panther Party's doing that. It was not a disciplined organization, but more of a, a symbolic mass movement <coughs> that was trying to bring in more and more people into the coalition. The idea of the Rainbow Coalition made a lot of sense to us, and we promoted that. We talked about Fred Hampton a lot. These experiments were happening all over the country. In Chicago, there was another organization called Rising Up Angry. They organized all over Chicago. And there were Rainbow Coalition, small R, small C Rainbow Coalitions all over the place that included groups like the American Indian Movement, like the Brown Berets. As we worked together, we thought, well, we're really a lot stronger if we do this together. And it made us think that if we really want to change society, we all had to come together and support each other's struggles. 
it, it just felt natural that you would struggle with other people who have been marginalized and who have been held down and who have been oppressed. Whether you're from the South, Northeast, or West, or whether you're a Negro, Hillbilly, or Yankee, we're going to stand here and fight together. Mr. Daly can take his money and his machine, his uptown can take his money and his machine and go straight to H.E. You know where with it. There's been trouble, and there's going to be more trouble, and we're going to continue to have more trouble. You see, people are, going to, are learning to struggle together, people are learning to fight together. And I don't think there's trouble, you know, I think there's self-defense, you know, I think we're defending ourselves, you know. I think the trouble has already come whenever removal came to this neighborhood. Black Panther, we're going to run this black community. We're not going to compromise. There was this sense of solidarity internationally. These are communities who are struggling for very much of the same goals into oppression. If we were connected to the world and uniting with all these struggles. That was the beauty of it. The world was on fire and we were part of that flame. It appeared to me they wanted the white community to think that they could be violent if they had to on behalf of their people. So don't miss the dark. They were meant to scare the police. But it was turned against them. It played right into the hands of Daly to say, you see how these violent people are? They're talking about revolution. This was a complete challenge to the structure. Yeah. It wasn't saying, let, let us in. That was not, you know, the, that was not the, the, the position of, of uh, the Rainbow Coalition. We didn't want in, so he didn't have a handle on us. Every meeting that's been held in Threshold's Hall has been observed by the Red Squad and photographed because they've watched it. I want to know what the purpose of this is. The Red Squad? They take your pictures just as these people are taking my picture here. The Red Squad. Their purpose was to identify and observe and even arrest people that were considered to be communist or socialist or on the red side. They tried to discredit us. You know, these guys are criminals. They're being arrested. So that's the image that people would get in the community. Police departments, gang intelligence unit. The unit that I was in formed a Panther squad. We were at this particular rally. Some kind of way the grumbling was, there's a lot of pigs in here, you know? So from the front of the room, Fred Hampton said, will the pigs please leave? <laughs> so about six people got up and we all kind of eyeballed each other. We scattered out. Then we started to talk amongst ourselves. What this mindset was and how threatening was it really to just everyday police work? And it wasn't. It was a threat to misconduct. It really was. Counterintelligence program, it was spying on groups to disrupt forces that we, we found objectionable. That's what we did. Uh, we 
the good word is neutralize. Black Panthers, you know, all these groups, they were the enemy. There was a mindset, we were going to lose the country. You know, it's us versus them. And we worked with the police, but we all generally thought the same way. There's been a glorification of this gang structure, and that's why it's so serious today. Here's the state's attorney. What about that guy? Hanrahan was very tight with Mayor Daly. He was one of his cronies. He wanted to destroy us. He declared a war on gangs. They are brutalizing their own neighbors. They were not criminals, even though the Chicago Police Department lumped them together with street gangs. It allowed the police department to chase them as if they were gang members. Reverend Johnson has made an offer about the purchase. Reverend Bruce Johnson was the pastor of the church that became the headquarters of the young lords. We did not consider it a youth gang. We consider it a viable community organization. We began working immediately with the church. We're already begun uh, taking an application for children for the children's center. Now the city of Chicago began attacking the reverend like they were attacking the young lords. And they began fining him $200 a day every day that the young girls remain at the church. All we wanted was to get some help for our community. In the gang intelligence unit, our unit, this is all gang crime stuff. They went in where the people were doing breakfast programs, busted eggs out of the refrigerator on the walls. They poured flour and busted eggs in the flour. They unnecessarily set back something that was a legitimate breakfast program. But that dry run, they were so frustrated because of who they were looking for was not there that day. And that was the day I decided that I didn't want to be in that unit anymore. The reason why we haven't been able to open a daycare center is because the city has found uh, ridiculous violations in the buildings, such as the uh, floor is too low, the ceiling is too high. They knew that we were going to begin to get a lot more support from the community. And the only way that they could stop us was by using bureaucracy. I think that they should also look around in some of those apartments where the children will have to stay, you know, where they are getting lead poisoning and not in a church where we are trying to take care of them. It turned out to be a very powerful coalition. It was kind of making them look bad. We hear constantly the attack on the establishment as though it is some invisible force that does nothing good for the community and for the country. I have no apology to make to anyone for our country. To a great extent, I think Daly was simply unable to understand a lot of the societal changes at that time. Perplexed, frustrated, he fell back on repression. This three-day conference may well be the turning point for what has up to this point been an increasing but loosely organized revolutionary phenomenon that will probably streamline and solidify what is now called the movement. Now we come from uh, Chi-Town, we come from a monster, we come from a monster. And the jaws of the monster 
in Chicago of grinding up the flesh and spitting out the blood of the poor and oppressed people, blacks, the south side, the west side, and the browns on the north side, the reds and the yellows, and yes, the whites. And we got together, the young lords, and the young patriots, the Black Panther Party in Illinois, and we just said, now, what are we gonna do? We said, we're gonna intensify the struggle, motherfucker. I was in the hole in Double Lock, which is where they usually put me in to the jail. The warden of the jail came and, and he took me to his apartment and he put the TV on. This being the first Sunday since the Reverend and Mrs. Bruce Johnson were murdered. He was stabbed 17 times and his wife nine times. Because he wanted to work with the young lords. I believe that's why he was killed. Before a raid, the police would hit the field, start arresting people. The postman's face would change. They knew they were coming. I would be lying if I said that we weren't afraid. We had two attacks on officers. Wasn't read at this time. Who was attacked, man? You can look at the women, man. Was there a fire in the? Uh, they said a fire after they got through. November, Spurgeon Jake Wins got into a shootout on the south side with police, and uh, they. <coughs> He shot two police who died, and they shot him about a thousand times. So when you have those type of dilemmas going on, it's difficult to have not only organization, but a coalition. Yeah. The police were harder on us when we were political than we were in the gang. If we were in the gang, we would be picked up on a Friday, released Monday. When we were political, they were talking about life in jail. Yeah, I think that the issue here is that judges and the state's attorney have been working with the GIU and, and everyone else to try to uh, suppress the Young Lords organization who are trying to speak out. You know, we're a poor organization. I had 18 charges on me. They were all felonies. For mob action and other demonstrations, basically lived at the courthouse. And so did Chairman Fred Hampton and some of the other leadership. went to jail together. They put us in the same hole to segregate us from the rest of the population. They were afraid that we would organize the rest of the jail population. I'm out on an appeal for trumped up robbery and we got um, around nine people still locked up in jail. 
not a question of nonviolence or violence. The question is between resistance to this fascism or even non-existence within fascism. COINTELPRO, one of the aspects of that program was to prevent the rise of what they call a messiah that could have the ability and charisma to bring together and to further empower groups. All power to all people. All we say white power to white people. White power to white people. Brown power to brown people. Yellow power to yellow people. Black power to black people. X power to booze and be that power. The 20-year-old chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, was shot and killed in a pre-dawn shootout with state's attorney's police on, in his west side apartment. Another party member, 22-year-old Mark Clark of Peoria, also died in the shootout. Chicago Police, COINTELPRO, Red Squad, they were all collectively responsible for the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and the wounding of others. Chicago Police took them out. If they didn't want you around, you weren't going to be around. And that's the way it worked back then. And it was scary. I went home, got my gun out. And I sat there. And I sat there and waited. I didn't know what the next move was going to be. Nobody did. When Fred Hampton was killed around 4 o'clock in the morning, they were calling us. That's when I found out about it. And uh, we took a group to to the apartment, people from all over the city came to be witnesses in case the police came back to remove any items. Government couldn't make him and couldn't destroy him. They shot him and he multiplied. I recall Jesse Jackson speaking and trying to try to not show any emotion, act like a macho. Fred, this is a good way to go. When he finished, I just couldn't hold it anymore. I just went into tears. A lot of people underestimated what the government would do to oppress a real true poor people's movement. And what did he do? He formed coalitions. That's what he did. I am personally grieved over the death of Fred Hampton because he was a personal friend of mine. So it is that those who are symbolic of challenging America's injustice tend to have to die unless we make a real radical and revolutionary change in this society. They sprayed this wall with 30 caliber machine gun fire. They shot people who were on the bed asleep. The physical appearance of this apartment uh, does not reveal any shooting out or reveal shooting in. All indications to me personally that this was uh, obviously a political assassination. Who was that? I have no idea. 
who does the state's attorney get their orders from? These, these bumbling police officers that carry that out. I don't even think they thought they were committing a crime. I think they thought they could get away with murdering people. Witnesses who have seen the apartment say there is no evidence of bullets from the direction where the uh, Panthers supposedly were to be. I said that uh, after our officers uh, announced their uh, purpose and their station several times, uh, they were fired upon from within the room. Hanrahan, a good Irishman like that, uh, I'm on his side, regardless. My kind of guy, that was the thought. These are bad guys. They're after us, they're hoodlums, and they're fair game. They knew exactly what they were doing. You know, they weren't killing Fred Hampton. You know, they were killing the whole movement. People were confused. There was chaos. People didn't know which way to go. People began to turn on each other. And it forced us as an organization to completely go underground. If Tatcha is on the ground, Fred dead, they, they created the nexus. So it was a downtime, man. It was bad. All of us had to go on our own separate ways. I had gone back to my hometown and had gotten harassed there. They considered me to be a communist. It always followed us around everywhere we were. Everybody was losing contact. Everybody was spreading all over the country. A lot of areas were displaced, you know, gentrified. So people had to move. So we lost contact for many years. Bit by bit, we, we were regaining some of the contacts back. I talked to Bobby Lee. He was telling me that he just doesn't feel very good. He called me uh, a couple of days and said he had cancer. And that he, uh, he was, uh, where's he? He's not going to take any chemo. And that's why I knew I had to come, you know, here. Um, uh, how you doing, Mr. Panther? Hey, buddy. Good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. Man, it's good to see you. Who would dream that you and I be together? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm shy, shy. I'm a Raymond Curtis is part two. Mr. Robert E. Lee, sir. All positive people, man. Oh, this is it. Oh, yeah. How Fred was said, you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill a revolution. And we're examples of that. All power to the people. These are the warriors. You know, they in the room. <laughs> you know, you have white panthers and you have black panthers. You have Puerto Rican panthers, too. They're just called young lords. They're just a subsidiary. <laughs> we didn't know that we were going to be lifelong friends, but we've ended up being lifelong friends.
We're leaving pretty soon. I just want to know uh, what do you want me and other people to to remember? Just keep serving the people. You know, for just uh, three or four hours a day, you do so. You know, like my mind would say, save your own soul. Do something. And that's very like how simple it is, man. He didn't really see skin color. He saw more of the people inside, the power that people could have to unite and, and to love each other. And that's what he wanted. It was a display of violence that caused a state of emergency to be issued in Virginia. Now the same white nationalist group plans to hold two rallies right here in Middle Tennessee. It must be the area that they're coming from over here. I think that's the checkpoint of the Nazis and the uh, white supremacists up there. We start the Young patriots in Chicago discontinued the use of the Confederate flag. We got into the Rainbow Coalition. We had to take a completely different look at the meaning of that flag. After a point, we thought there's no use for that flag here anymore. What that flag really stands for is hate. On December 4th, 1972, I ended up turning myself in, which was the day Fred Hampton was killed. Intentionally, turning myself in to let people know that the reason I was coming back was to continue our movement, the Rainbow Coalition. We didn't think that elections were gonna give us revolution, but we saw it as a tool to continue the struggle. My campaign for aldermen was used as an organizing vehicle for change. We did voter registration drives. That was the first time that many Latinos were voting. Hanrahan, he was on the ballot to run for re-election. Members of the Rainbow Coalition circulated petitions asking for people to make a commitment of conscience to remember that he had been behind the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. The entire black community revolted and voted for a Republican state's attorney. There's nothing I hate worse than defeat, uh, Bob. Uh, uh, but you can't, uh, you can't uh, roll over uh, and cry. That began a fracturing of the grip that the machine held on the community. It was the last of the big city machines to be cracked in any way. When the curtain comes down and it's bound to someday, I'll just say I did the best I could. that concept of the Rainbow Coalition, it brought a lot of people together. The concept helped elect Harold Washington, mayor of Chicago. Blacks, whites, Hispanics, have joined hands to form a new democratic coalition. 
the Rainbow Coalition, it presented a possibility. You know, it gave us a vision for what could be in terms of interracial politics. Our flag is red, white, and blue, but our nation is rainbow. Red, yellow, brown, black, and white. They are the members of what Jesse Jackson calls his Rainbow Coalition. The idea of the rainbow, I think that was a beautiful, beautiful notion of repudiating racism. That groups could acknowledge their common problems despite the huge legacy of racial antagonism and racial hostility that existed in a place like Chicago. It's phenomenal. I think that the time will come when the people themselves will uh, take the power that belongs to them to their hands and move. Racial profiling has to stop, Mr. Speaker. Just because someone wears a hoodie does not make them a hula. Barack Obama came to Chicago because he heard about the rainbow politics in Harold Washington. I think at the time we had some romantic notion of what the revolution would be. Clearly that didn't happen, but that doesn't mean that we didn't revolutionize society. It's still in the psychic memory of people in Chicago. We still have the hope that we can come back together and fight to change things. They didn't need us. I don't want nobody to think that. They didn't need us. We did what we set out to do. We made a better community. The Rainbow Coalition gave voice to the voiceless and their activism demonstrated that ordinary people can change society through collective action. Today, many of the cities are facing the same issues of housing, of police brutality, of poor health care. The Rainbow Coalition is symbolic because we prove that it can work. Multi-ethnic people together fighting for a common cause. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. You know, the whole concept of coalition politics is what appealed us to another level of consciousness. Fred was saying, we didn't start the movement, we're not going to finish it. We're part of a protracted struggle that's going to continue that's on. still going on. And so we need to re-energize ourselves and continue to struggle and go forward. Right on. Bobby Lee, before he passed away, he told me, if you don't know where to start organizing, you walk to your front door and you look in front of you, you look behind you, you look to the left, you look to the right, and then you pick a direction. Well, now the uh, 
rainbow coalition definition is in the dictionary. Two different meanings. They got one Jesse Jackson's, and they have one about, you know, uh, racial uh, coalition. So which one is the first? Uh, ours. Okay. Okay. You need. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, a lot of you, you saw there. There was a lot of other stuff going on too. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what was happening that deepened to the neighborhood. You know, Mayor Daly, of course, he was raised in a street gang. You know, he grew up in the street gang of the Hamburgs, which helped propel him to, you know, where he became mayor, became sheriff, or uh, sit in the state state council. But uh, his gang was called the Hamburgs, which he they classified as an athletic association. But what he did, and this this gang did, was to keep what they they're classifying as classifying as non desirables out of the community, which was uh, an Irish neighborhood in Chicago. And at the same time, when there were other activities that had to be done, especially for politicians. They were quick to do it, but they were also quick to fight. You know, so he knew, he knew the structures of you know gangs, uh, and so he was not about to let any other organization or gang gang control in Chicago when he was in office, because most of the people that ran the city or county was his cronies. And those were people that came up through, you know, the Hamburgs with him. And so he was a vicious son of a bitch, I tell you. He he was racist, fascist, you know, and he really didn't care anything about minorities at all, poor, poor people. Uh, he wanted the, you know, uh, the glory of the elite. And so he would do anything to keep you know, he had a few of his tokens around, but he he uh, he would not allow anybody to gain any control or make any decisions that were from you know poor communities. You know, unless they were part of his uh, his regime. So he would side uh, with all the the police department was his gang. Okay, he. He treated the police department as his own gang. He could do whatever he wanted with the police department. He gave them card once to do anything. Uh, and also, uh, he, would, he would take the most, uh, uh, the meanest cops, uh, the cops that had, you know, a lot of complaints and were uh, psychotic and put them in the poor communities. And that's how he controlled and that's how the Chicago, for years, was not segregated. Uh, we had to be very careful if we, as a Southerner with a, with a Southern accent, <clears throat> went into some communities that was not Southern. Because we had been categorized as white trash and dangerous and, you know, keep, keep your daughters away from us because they might, they might get raped, you know. Several articles came out in the uh, Chicago Tribune indicating us, and we talked talk about it a little bit, uh, as, as like a swarm of locusts, 
hmm. came into the city. Well, the problem is we can only be in one community because we weren't allowed in other communities. So how are we about to take over the city? You know, so they they uh, use these uh, uh, statements to to turn people against the southern uh, people. At the same time, the uh, the poor people. So, you know, we were we were considered to be this just scum and treated as such. And uh, and so there are lack of services for uh, for these communities. Um, you know, there was not any health care around. There were no food programs around. There were a lot of blood banks around where you could sell your blood. Uh, there were uh, day labor agencies that uh, people worked at. You're lucky to get a job there because there weren't that many jobs. And uh, and I worked I worked there for a little while, but you'd have to give a person to pay to the management place to get a job the next day. <clears throat> and people were so poor that um, they couldn't afford to leave. They had no, no other place to go. And uh, and would calculate, you know, and figure out when someone could give blood in their family uh, to supplement some of their income. Some of them did get some, uh, uh, you know, welfare. And uh, and so it was very, and, but the, the people getting welfare had no rights at all, <coughs> none at all. And that's what happened with some of the people that were in the Patriots and in Join and others had the first welfare rights organization. Well, welfare recipients demand action, you know, and just took over the uh, the welfare offices demanding, you know, representation, which changed a lot, which changed some of the things. But further in the community, um, urban renewal was, was tearing down the community. Urban renewal was supposed to be there to help rehabilitate buildings so people could live in them. But what they did, they came in, they were tearing them down. And specifically, we talked say, yesterday at the Poor People's Harbor Street about um, they have designated an area to put in a, a community college. And uh, the community got together and proposed an alternative, which was a people's village, which would uh, basically uh, have its own, uh, you know, health services, food stores, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a city hall, uh, all kinds of services, uh, employment services, uh, even a uh, hotel for people when they were coming to Chicago could stay and could be worked with uh, to, to get them jobs somewhere in the city. And then um, also, the buildings uh, could have been uh, rehabilitated, the buildings uh, renovated, uh, that could be renovated, and, uh, and those that couldn't would be torn down and others built, but it would be a community that would be run by the, uh, by the people. And it's written up in a lot of different uh, books now and papers as a... Uh, a housing pro the best housing program that ever was and so we submitted this proposal to 
the council that Daly had appointed and wouldn't allow any of us to sit on, uh, stating that we had an alternative, right, to them. And uh, and they said, well, if you get the funding, we'll, we'll see if we can take a look at it. We did. We got, at that time, $475,000 and a lot of um, uh, you know, real estate companies, uh, you know, supporting it. Of course, they, in a secret meeting, you know, voted against it, and it never was built. But the other part of it, that the, the most horrific part of it, was arson for hire. They, uh, uh, the chancellor, Oscar Chabot, was chancellor of City Colleges. He had three friends. He sent into the uptown area to buy old buildings, vacant buildings, or just old dilapidated buildings. Um, and so they could get them at a reasonable, uh, a reasonable cost. Well, part of their plan was to burn the buildings. And they burned the buildings in, that, in this area in, in Chicago, and 28 people died in this, including kids, babies, handicapped people. Um, firemen were also caught and photographed burning garages and buildings. So in a sense, what they would do is they would buy up these buildings, torch them, collect the insurance from it, sell everything back to the city again. These folks became billionaires over. 2020 did an expose on them and you know, proved that they did this, but they turned around and sued 2020, and 2020 had to come back and make a retraction and stuff. But anyway. yeah. um, nobody was ever, for any of these murders, no one has ever, you know, ever paid the price. Uh, and any of us at that time were fighting against this plan, just, uh, we, were, we were already targeted by the police. Um, the cops, and we were steadily beaten after that, or several of our members. The man that you saw up there, one of the people that said we should take these landlords and throw them to the lake somewhere, the older guy, uh, they found him with his throat cut. Uh, we, had a, we had another member that was down south, um, went back and tried to start a health clinic, and he was assassinated. Uh, those of us that were underground, we had to be continuously careful about where we were coming out at that time. I was caught in Chicago, taken into an alley with two cops who just literally beat the hell out of me. And um, I got nerve damage on top of my head here now from it. But that's the way it was. They were also, uh, the cops had carbonchy with a big one. Uh, the precinct captain in the area uh, had an apartment where he they could take women for sex. They would uh, find someone that would be like if they had gotten in some kind of a trouble that tried to work it out in sex. If they had you know someone's family member that they could send to jail. They'd, work it out in sex. They also had their own burglars um, that they would get to break into 
places to steal stuff for them. And 19, that was going on then in the 60s, but in 1959, it was called the Great Summerdale Scandal. Um, that caused them to change their name of the, of the district. Uh, one, a detective called a burglar and, and said, you know, I don't want to send you to jail, I want you to work with me. And so other cops are like, okay, that works. So I'll get them too. So the next thing you know, there's a whole group of burglars running around and uh, and if they were going to have a, a cookout or something, they'd get them to go in and steal the meat for a uh, In one incident, um, the, uh, uh, one of the cop's daughters was getting married, and so they had to go steal a ring. And the other incident, uh, when they finally, they did get busted because they were un when unsuspecting cop from another district that didn't know anything about it busted somebody and they told him about it. So he involved the FBI and they went in and busted this uh, 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 police district. They even had to go into the home of one of the one of the cops they busted and take a ring off his wife's finger. You know, that's how crooked they were. Uh, at a joint office, a girl, a woman wandered in their crimes and I just been raped two cops took in an hour and raped. Me and uh, Bobby McGinnis that you saw holding up the button, and uh, and another male young patriot, and a female young patriot, uh, were stopped by the cops by two corrupt patrol officers, and they came down and looked in the car, and you know they knew who we were, and uh, they had uh, Bobby McGinnis to go back to the police car and he held up some pills and said we're going to charge you with you know distributing narcotics uh, but we can drop that if we can fuck the girl by that time another squad car pulled up because they knew what was going on. they were intending on gangbanging this female and we said where are they body you go and we had a little scuffle, but then we got away from them. We got in the car and got away from them. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable, you know? But that fills in some of why we were, we were so adamant about trying to form a coalition, you know, and seeked out the Black Panthers, because we knew that the Black Panthers would help us. And so, um, now, like I said, I had to go underground for a while, uh, stayed there for a while, came back out, uh, wrote a book, <laughs> uh, got involved with the uh, Second Rainbow Coalition, which I'm glad I lived long enough to see. You know, <coughs> got some great groups in it, and it's following one of the same legacy as some of the, the first Rainbow Coalition. So uh, I don't think we can do anything to go up from here, but we're going to be attacked. Uh, we're going to be attacked. There's no doubt about that. They're not going to allow this to happen again. They're not going to try. So that's why we have to organize as much as we can now. But I met Kwame, uh, who has been organizing the Second Rainbow. And we've been doing this book tour all over. We did it in the West Coast. We're doing it now on the East Coast. And we're going to do it in the Midwest. And, you know, until we can, I guess. You know, 
but that's why, you know, that's that's why we organize all these people that need so much help. And they they don't know where to go, and, and, and we we what we're saying is we have a direction for you to go, you know, and and we have a way for you to really do something about it. So we'll be doing more organizing in, in the future. That's <coughs> Hey, come on. Have you yeah. a statement of unity? Uh, you want to read it? Yeah, I can do that. I have a statement of unity. Uh, that from uh, most of you folks have seen it. You know, it's like it's to join the, uh, the second language. So I'll just uh, read the whole thing, right? The preface and the statement. Yeah, I'd, I'd just say a little bit about this. Uh, so we started the Second Rainbow Coalition uh, May 14, 2021. Uh, it really came from this video right here, right here uh, Jose Chacha Jimenez, uh, the founder of the Young Lords. Uh, he reached out to me. We, we, long story short, became friends. He said, hey, uh, comrade, check out the Rainbow Coalition that's coming out on PBS uh, January the 27th, 2021. So I watched it. Uh, I think uh, me, Shaka, the New African Black Panther Party, we check it out. And we got the great idea, let's do it again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we already been working towards this direction. We know a lot of the different revolutionaries around the country that we're working with. So we started off, uh, at the time I was the Minister of Culture with the New African Black Panther Party. Uh, so we, uh, in North New Jersey, uh, it was the White Panthers, New African Black Panther Party, and the New Era Young Lords. That's what they was called at the time. We just call them the Young Lords now. Um, we founded that. Uh, Hi, uh, friend Andy Willis is another elder, reached out to us. He was like, well, me and Hi just heard that y'all doing this Rainbow Coalition thing. We would love to like do a Zoom, you know, and discuss a little bit with y'all about this. So it started off with just about to be a Zoom. Uh, then it evolved to them being like, we all in again, you know what I mean? So uh, ever since then, we just uh, connected. Uh, I probably talked to this comrade probably more than any other other elders, period, around the country, you know. But he's been very, very, very much a big mentor, uh, friend, um, uh, also comrade. comrade, you know, just putting this together with me. Uh, he put together this whole tour. <laughs> You know what I mean? Made it easy on me. I just got to show up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and we got 10 organizations a part of the Second Rainbow Coalition now. You know, uh, New African Black Panther Party, White Panther Party, uh, Green Party of New Jersey, uh, La Mesa, National Day Brown Berets, uh, Fury, NASO, American Indian Movement, uh, Northeast Woodland chap Chapter. Uh, I know I'm missing somebody, but y'all already know. Poor People's Army right here. You know, right here. I can't leave y'all. Y'all in the building. I, I got to y'all later on. <laughs> but, you know, uh, we, we constantly expanding. And this is more so we use these books as uh, a vehicle to spread our message, spread our principle unity that we want to establish with the people. You know what I mean? So we can, uh, we established this uh Second Rainbow Coalition Statement of Unity, uh, which all the organizations that unite with us uphold this, and this is the basis of our unity. Um, so I'll just start with the preface. Uh, the United States was founded as a colonial settler state based upon white, supremi right, <laughs> white supremacy and slavery. 
stealing the lands of the indigenous nations, breaking every treaty made with them, and confining them to reservations or concentration camps. As the country became more powerful, the eagle sunk its claws into other nations, making war on Mexico and grabbing its northern territory, <coughs> invading Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and the Philippines, and either an uh, annexing them outright or making them colonies or neo-colonies. In the 20th century, it became the major imperialist power in the world, exploiting both the people within its boundaries and those in every other country, bullying them with military interventions and robbing them of their right to self-determination. As Huey P. Newton stated, we have two enemies to fight, racism and capitalism. Between the two, capitalism is primary. Racism is a byproduct of capitalism. The working people of the world, of every ethnicity or nationality, face a common enemy that is destroying life on Earth. Our enemy is a small ruling class of property owners controlling most of the world's wealth and resources. We must have our basic needs met to live a good and meaningful life. Food, shelter, healthcare, education, freedom from oppression by the state, and peace with other nations. To obtain these essential things for life, we must have the power to see to it that the abundance that is available is shared equitably. And then the statement of unity itself. The legacy of the first Rainbow Coalition dates back to its founding on April 4th, 1969, by the original Black Panther Party, original Young Lords, and the Young Patriots Organization. A number of other organization joined, uh, organizations joined this coalition not too long afterwards, such as the American Indian Movement, Ron Berets, Rising Up Angry, the Red Guards, and others. Oh, They're coming for us. <laughs> Since the founding of the United States, the masses have developed a number of popular movements that came together to fight back against this capitalist imperialist system in various ways around particular demands. Nevertheless, None had established a movement, a movement quite like the first Rainbow Coalition. This historic movement was the first of its kind that established a model of class struggle like no other. Its charismatic leader, Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois chapter of the original Black Panther Party, uh, stated that at the end of the day, we're not engaged in a race struggle. He said it's a class struggle, goddammit. Uh, by uniting with the various oppressed ethnicities and the masses, they were able to bridge the gap between the various ethnic communities that white supremacy had long sought to keep divided. This class solidarity equipped them with the material basis and class consciousness to see their common class condition. Therefore, the necessity to form a united front against their common class oppressor, the capitalist imperialist ruling class. The ruling class viewed this as the greatest threat to their class rule and subsequently used the entire repressive forces of the state police, courts, jails, prisons, intelligence agencies, etc., in order to crush this emerging revolutionary socialist movement. We refounded the Rainbow Coalition on May 14, 2021, with the intent of upholding the legacy of the original Rainbow Coalition. We believe that this historic example is the model for the United Front that will best serve our class liberation. By upholding the 10-point program of the original Black Panther Party, which was subsequently adopted and later expanded by uh, the Young Lords, the Young Patriots, and all other Rainbow Coalition members, we establish our programmatic unity. Um, most of the organizations in the, in the coalition today also have some variant of the 10-point program. Mm -hmm. um, the six disciplinary rules that we uphold ties all organizations in our coalition to a common professional discipline. History has bestowed upon our generation a common class mission to fulfill. 
the representatives of the capitalist imperialist ruling class represented by the Democratic Party and Republican Party cannot liberate us. It is their class intention and interest to uphold our uh, common class oppression. Therefore, it is only we, the oppressed masses of all uh, ethnicities and nationalities, who must build the necessary class solidarity, class consciousness, organizational structures, and a united front that will ultimately liberate ourselves. This is what the Second Rainbow Coalition is committed to. This is the historic mission we intend to fulfill. Dare to struggle, dare to win. All power to the people. Absolutely. This is our comrade uh, Rob uh, Quarters. He's a minister of, cult, uh, of education with the White Panther Party. Yeah. So, hey, yeah. he's, been we, he's been a big help. He's been taking us around to all these locations. Uh, so, we've been enjoying his company. <laughs> I've been enjoying his <laughs> company. Shit. Um, so my, my story, and I'm, I'm going to do this a little bit different, share different parts of my book this time, because uh, some of y'all already heard uh, like how I came to even read, start to read books and start doing education. Uh, my story is a lot like a lot of the, you know, uh, the Malcolm X's, the George Jackson's that, you know, was in the criminal lifestyle and, uh, you know, it took them to prison, just like it took me to prison. I went to prison for 18 years for a bank robbery I committed at the age of 19. And uh, we we recently had a, a book study on my book and we was talking about the criminal mentality. What is the criminal mentality? It's a colonized mentality. You know, it's it's, it's what wretched, Franz uh, Fanon talks about it, the wretched of the earth when the poor internalize their own oppression and, and project it on their communities, you know what I mean? Uh, but it was uh, around the time, or I want to say 2000, when I was on the Supermax unit at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, and I came across, well, a friend of mine, me and him, was on that unit together. And uh, uh, he got me already reading books uh, before we even got to that unit. And I eventually came across a speech by Fred Hampton called uh, Power Anywhere There's People. And that speech like transformed my whole way of looking at things. You know what I mean? Like he was so charismatic uh, in this uh, Two book 11 journal I was reading. Uh, they was talking about the Black Panther Party. I didn't know nothing about the Black Panther Party. Like I said in the book, I thought they was racist, like the Black Ku Klux Klan, you know what I mean? Because I saw a preacher on TV say that one time, you know what I mean? So I always stuck with me, but I also heard about you know, Tupac used to talk about the Black Panthers and they songs, and I always looked up to Tupac. So when I came across Fred Hampton and he was 21 years old and I find out he was assassinated at the same time I'm sitting on this unit, I'm 21 years old. And uh, that from that day forth, it changed my way of looking at self-education. Uh, so I wanted to share parts of my book about that process of self-education. Uh, you know how I started to realize, like the people that's the outcasts in society. Huey B. Newton uh, called them the lumping proletariat, the street cats, the the gangsters, the pimps, the dope dealers, and how these individuals can actually become a solution and uh, shouldn't be uh, dismissed. You know, society dismissed a lot of uh, a lot of us, but when I was in prison, that's when I started to realize the potential of the people that's in the streets. You know what I mean? Uh, but Part of it is decolonizing their minds. So I want to talk about some of the little things I was doing because 
a lot of people out here, I've only been out seven years, and, uh, you know, people, humbly speaking, you know, have been uh, impressed by some of the things I've been able to accomplish out here, but they don't realize a lot of this stuff started in prison. <laughs> like, I made all my biggest mistakes in there. You know, I love, you know, we always talk about theory and practice, you know what I mean? Uh, that's how, that's the scientific method of approach to better uh, developing your social practice. Uh, but it started in prison and it was related to other brothers that was on the same path as that I was on. So I want to share two passages out of my book. <clears throat> so it said, uh, I had met a lot of conscious brothers over the years that I had spent in prison. Most of them, like myself, had been criminals who had got locked up, who had gotten locked up and had been given 40, 50, 60 or more years in prisons and eventually started to undergo years of self-education at some point. A lot of them had spent years on supermax units and for the first time in their lives had started to search for answers. Many of our stories were similar, such as in how we turned to revolutionary politics and began incorporating those politics into our daily lives. I think a lot of the uh, all the groups and individuals who had influenced individuals like me, uh, most have been Malcolm X and the original Black Panther Party. By this time in my prison bit, I had read so many books that I had a nice library in myself. Coming across other guys around my age who were on the same journey as myself, it was natural that we started to come together and decide to pra uh, decide practical solutions that would help raise the consciousness of other prisoners inside with us. One of the creative way, uh, things we came up with was the communal library we developed while on D East. D East uh, was a, a administrative segregation unit where we were separated from population, but we could get like commissary and stuff like that. It wasn't a disciplinary segregation unit, so-called, but uh, all the brothers on the various ranges who had large selections of books wrote down a list of books that they had and were willing to make a part of the communal library. We then compiled the list and made it available to anybody who wasn't a snitch or a child molester and wanted to educate themselves. I think the most popular book that a lot of guys selected out of my library was Asada, uh, Autobiography by Asada Shakur. Asada's autobiography was one of the most, uh, my favorite books too. She was a Black Panther and a Black Liberation member, member who had been a part of those movements and had gotten incarcerated behind the incident that had occurred on uh, the New Jersey Turnpike in 1973 that left a pig by the name of Warner Forster dead. Even though she was hit during the shootout, which left her left uh, dominant arm temporarily paralyzed, they had charged her with the murder of that pig alongside with uh, Sundiata Akoli. One of the other BLA members named Zay Malik Shakur was killed during the shootout. By all evidence, the shootout was uh, initiated by the pigs. While serving time for that case at Clinton Correctional Facility for Women, she was able to escape from that prison in 1979, which is the year I was born, with the help of uh, a number of revolutionaries who helped break her out. She eventually fled to Cuba where she enjoys political asylum to this day. Her story fat completely fascinated me the first time I read her book. Not only could I identify with her evolution into a revolutionary by documenting the various transitions in her life, 
I had learned a lot about the capitalist and privileged system and why socialist revolution was the only solution for the oppressed black population in particular, as well as the lower class in general. Her account of how the Civil War had nothing to do with freeing black people from slavery out of some moral concern, but rather was a war to decide if the capitalist ruling class or the slave-owning ruling class would control the direction of the U.S. reign true. I had already read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, who was the so-called godfather of capitalism. Even in his own book, he had explained that chattel slavery was an inferior social economic system compared to capitalism and would eventually have to be replaced by it. A lot of the books I had in my possession were books about the original Black Panther Party, even though I had started to consider myself a Marxist Leninist Maoist, I recognized most black people wouldn't enter revolutionary politics through white or even Chinese revolutionaries who they couldn't directly identify with in an immediate sense. They would have to learn about the legacy of the Black Panthers here in the United States, and then and only then could they venture outside of the parameters of the U.S. borders to discover where the Panthers got their ideological method of approach and world outlook from. Anyone who doesn't realize this fundamental truth about the black community is either naive or still blinded by their myopic ethnic centralism. This latter point is something that Eurocentric Marxist Leninist Maoists must come to understand or they will never be able to relate to the black population. In a country that has been infused with white supremacy on every level, throughout every institution, black people are very dis, uh, distrustful of any anything dressed in white who claims they will bring us salvation here in heaven or on earth. At least that's what I was seeing from the brothers in prison who had begun searching for answers within the pages of books. I was one of the few communists I had come across in prison. Most brothers were either black nationalists or cultural nationalists. Some of them expressed through uh, some of them expressed it through religions, such as those who embraced the nation Islam. Others were contemporary Garveyites. Some through the Morris Science Temple, which was a mixture of cultural nationalism with religion, while others were black Hebrew Israelites. Then you had those who were black nationalists who embraced the five state solution advocated by the Republic of New Africa. Occasionally, you would come across the New African communists who were a combination of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, and the ideals of the Republic of New Africa. I was able to find a lot of points of unity with the latter group of guys more than any of the, uh, the above, besides those who viewed themselves as modern-day Black Panthers, as I did. Oh, okay. I was like, damn, man. I I turned it up. He's <laughs> I, I hear somebody humming again. <laughs> but one thing I realized by those years relating and dialoguing with the conscious sector of these brothers behind the wall was that identity politics would be the greatest hurdle for our people. I wouldn't say this was exclusive to black population of prisoners because it actually affected the whole prison population to one degree or another. The Aryan Brotherhood, an Aryan circle with the extreme fascists form that identity, politics, and nationalism took, uh, took upon. While most guys and groups uh, fitted on the spectrum of nationalism where it was often hard to get guys to truly embrace a class consciousness that transcended the social concerns of their own ethnicity. 
it wasn't that they were necessarily racist because most view racism as a part of the problem. They just couldn't get past viewing the problems that affected the black community from a black centered lens that was often devoid of a class analysis that would have would have helped them to view the same issue holistically. Subsequently, that limited many guys from seeing who their natural alliances really were. Black people alone cannot achieve black liberation. We need allies and to build a united front against capitalism and imperialism to accomplish that. Besides, I had already started to view black liberation as a means to an even greater end, human liberation. Human liberation. That was one of the most significant lessons I had learned from the original Black Panther Party. They said we weren't trying to fight racism with racism. We had to fight it with solidarity. They said we couldn't fight capitalism with black capitalism. We had to fight it with socialism. Ultimately, though, we were fighting for a communist world without uh, class antagonisms, racism, sexism, all for all the isms that divide the human species against itself. In all actuality, there was only one race, and that was the human race. White supremacy had just done a marvelous job in preventing us from seeing that. Sometimes when I would sit back and really think about the world we were fighting to bring into existence, I would imagine what the people in the communist future would actually think about our period in human history. When we look back at our ancestors and laugh at their ignorance and how unscientific they were, we often overlook our own ignorance and unscientific conclusions we reach today. It's crazy now to think that many of the uh, many of them actually believe the earth was flat or that the blue body plague uh, between 1346 and 1353 of this common era was due to sin and murders, scores of Jews behind it. Today, most of the people, those with rational common sense, <laughs> know that the earth is not flat and that the blue body plague came uh, from a bacterium, uh, Yersinius pestis, which came from fleas that were on the back of rats. It makes you wonder what they will think of us and how we use pseudo-scientific ideals such as racism, sexism, and homophobia to divide our species. I would sometimes wonder what they would think about how capitalism nearly wiped out our species with endless wars just for some imperialist countries to be able to dominate and control other oppressed countries. I will often imagine what they would think about our social economic system compared to the one that they will have they will have been born in and raised in. I would I, I imagine that the, the feeling this I imagine them feeling the same way that we view today the time period of the transatlantic slave trade in the United States and around the world, with utter disgust and disbelief that such a thing could have ever occurred. We all know that it happened <clears throat> because we read about it. Uh, read about it, watched movies and documentaries about it, but still it just seems so surreal that people had actually been forced to endure it. It seems so crazy that people truly believe that that was an ordained by God, and many white people truly believe that they were superior species in relation to us. Some still act as if they believe that today, but that is a dying ideal while they keep it alive in objective ways in practice, though. Nevertheless, whenever I contemplate and thought about that, what the future communist world would uh, think about us, it would cause me all the more to want to be a person who they could point to and say that I was someone in my lifetime who bucked against the lunacy of my own time, even 
when it was unpopular to do so. Because I read a lot of books, I eventually came across a poem that I adopted as my creed that became a major influence in how I did my time. That poem was Invictus by William Ernest Hemsley. That poem resonated with me so much that I got Invictus tatted down my left uh, back arm and, uh, uh, and so tatted down my right back arm. I still believed in God. I would say I went from being a Christian who believed in a personal God from the Bible who uh, who would occasionally intervene in human affairs to being a deist, who viewed this God as being the first cause to the material world, but never intervened into human affairs. I think my studies of yoga, Buddhism, and the Egyptian mystery schools of thought, along with the studies in the metaphysics, caused me to evolve into the direction once I left uh, Christ, the Christian faith behind. I even wrote a piece around this time titled Dialectic Metaphysics. Since I was trying to resolve the contradiction between my recognition of both dialectical materialism and a deist God. However, the more I began to probe the question of God and study dialectical materialism, I found myself becoming more agnostic in my world outlook on this subject. <coughs> if you would have asked me at this point in my life if I believed there was God, I would have admitted that I didn't know. The subject was a question mark. That's why William Ernest Hensley captured my feelings about life so accurately at this juncture. In that poem, he said, out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I think whatever guys may be for my unconquerable soul. In the filled clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bulgings of chance, my head is bloody but unbound. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. Yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my faith. I'm the captain of my soul. Mm -hmm. I wanted to share that section of my book because uh, it shows you that, you know, I was really struggling with a lot of different questions at this time in my life. And, uh, you know, I, I I started to search through it, uh, like like my book, <laughs> my search for answers, truth, and meaning. You know, uh, that search took me in a lot of different directions. You know, uh, reading uh, books on the Panthers, reading subjects about philosophy, like dialectical materialism, metaphysics. You know what I mean? Stuff I would have never did out here. I if you would have even asked me what dialectical materialism, metaphysics was out here, I was like, "What the hell is that? Like, is that Swahili or something?" You know what I mean? <laughs> Chinese, uh, Arabic. Uh, what the hell are you talking about? You know. But it gave me time to reflect on bigger questions in life. I think a lot of us have this yearning where we want to answer some of these biggest questions of life, but don't know where to start or don't have the time. <laughs> to even uh, contemplate some of these things, you know what I mean? And this right here reflects, you know, the, the importance of struggling with ideals. It's it, the importance of trying to resolve contradictions in our cognitive dissonance, you know what I mean? We was all raised a certain type of way, you know what I mean? And like Mark said, you know, it is not uh, one's consciousness that determines their social being. But on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. And this means like within our community, it shapes us in different ways, the, the, depending on what side of town, what social class uh, demographic we came from, what religious uh, background we came from, street organizations, 
um, uh, even the different countries uh, that we may have been born in or being in a rural uh, uh, southern situation coming to Chicago, all those things shape us, but it don't have to confine us if we we are self-determining when we uh, apply ourselves and, and, and take up uh, political education and challenge some of the ways that we came up thinking and try to find the truth, some tangibility in what we conclude and how we relate to other people. All these things has to be challenged. This is part of the process, you know what I mean? Of political education, of becoming conscious, of understanding what being a revolutionary is. Uh, we're trying to fight to bring into a different society. You know, and uh, at one point I, I talk about I, I it started to imagine what what does the future world look like? You know, what I mean, and how would they think about us if they can look back and come back to our time? Like we saw Back to the Future, the movie Back, back to the Future. What if these individuals came back here in 2023 and, and, and they saw the world we live in? They got a chance to sit down and talk to us and they're like, damn. Like y'all really have fascists? Like what the hell? Like what 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 is that? Like y'all really thought they that y'all was a superior species than the next human being? Like y'all really had wars where y'all destroy whole countries, y'all destroy the whole climate, which could have made all of us win extinct. What was y'all thinking, man? Like that's crazy. Like y'all are strange mm -hmm. people. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they're they're you and I. It's the same way when we look in the past 500 years ago, when we look at our ancestors back then, we were like, damn, what was they on? Like, <laughs> they thought the earth was really flat and stuff. Uh, you know what I mean? They they was killing people because they thought it was uh, the blue body plague. Like I said, they thought they were sinful and all the Jews over here, they're, they're bringing the curses on our land. We got to commit genocide. Like, it's crazy. But sometimes I think we have to put our mind in that mind frame of being that futuristic population that's fighting for a different world. We can't stay stuck within our own time. We have to be trailblazers and, and even challenge unpopular things in our own culture. When we see our uh, LGBTQI comrades being attacked, you know, we have to remember when, it, we, when black people was segregated and looked at as inferior and was discriminated against and say, well, just because this brother or sister was born this way, you know, why should we allow this society to persecute them? It's going to be people like us, like even Martin Luther King says that sometimes silence becomes betrayal. You know what I mean? So we have to speak up. We have to get involved in fighting against these social issues. But I, I started learning this first in prison. You know what I mean? And that was my starting point. And I carried this over out here to today. You know what I mean? So this one I wanted to convey in that because a lot of people see what I do out here. But I, I try to always tell people like, look, <laughs> that started way long time ago. I was already putting theory to practice. I started hearing Fred Hempton and the, and the, and the revolutionaries like, nah, theory good. But if you ain't putting it into practice, like how do you know? Like Mao Zedong said, it's gonna, that's where the criteria of truth comes from. You know, you got to put it in practice. That's the scientific method. And a lot of people don't understand it. Revolution is a science. We have to come back just like a scientist and draw conclusions. What worked? What didn't work? Why didn't it work? What were some of the variables that we overlooked? It's a scientific process in transforming our, uh, our society today.
You know what I mean? I have one other passage. Let me see how much time we got. I don't want to. All right, this is my last one real quick. And uh, <clears throat> this this kind of cooperates with this. Uh, a lot of people see me working with the street organizations. You know what I mean? Uh, this one, the reason why I do. You know what I mean? This passage gets to this. Uh, this is also why the government uh, wants to keep uh, some of these demographics into that street element. You know what I mean? But we have to see the potential of these brothers and sisters out here in order for us to really uh, get to the real down in the bottom masses out here. Because those are the ones that once we get them on board, ah, man, we, 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 gotta, we, <laughs> we got a whole army. <laughs> you feel me? So this is the part I want to share with y'all about this. And this will be my last uh, part I'm going to read. It says, brothers, it says, brothers like Shango made the time I spent on the shoot easier to endure. And this one I was on Supermax. Uh, I'm fast forwarding on a little story a little bit. I found a lot of meaning in helping others to answer those big questions of life. It also showed me that some of the most hardcore gangsters, criminals, and convicts was just as capable as anyone else to transform themselves and become intellectuals as well. In fact, it made me realize that Huey P. Newton was right about the lump and proletariat class being essential to the Vanguard Party and the Socialist Revolution. Although many of us have been criminals throughout our lives, we were the ones who had experienced firsthand police brutality, the injustice of the courts, the dehumanization of their prisons, and the hopelessness at the bottom. Many of us have been students of guerrilla warfare in our communities through gang warfare, living the street life or simply being rebels without a cause. The main difference between the criminal element and a person who transformed themselves into a revolutionary is political education. One of this, one, uh, once this class of brothers and sisters were given a uh, revolutionary education, they realized that they would become the main background, back, backbone to any genuine revolutionary movement in this country. That section of our community is our army and fighting force. They just aren't aware of it yet. Instead of turning their guns against themselves, they must be made aware of who their real uh, enemy is. The fact that I had spent so much time on administrative and uh, disciplinary segregation units allowed me the opportunity to run across all, a lot of the gang leaders, hardcore criminals, stick-up men, and the brazen elements in our community. Instead of trying to recruit all of these brothers directly into the black guerrilla circle, I was trying to start a movement uh, organization in prison. It was a clandestine revolutionary. It was based on like what J George Jackson was doing, the black guerrilla family, you know. They even took some of their name, Black Gorilla Circle, you know what I mean? I started focus on self-education in general. As long as they showed any interest in anything I was talking about, I made sure I kept one of my books in their hand. It didn't necessarily matter which subject they were most interested in. If they were interested in studying religion, I had a number of books that, they, that I would give them. If they were interested in studying philosophy, I kept books on that. If they were interested in studying the original Black Panther Party, I kept books like the Huey P. Newton Reader, edited by David Hilliard, George Jackson's Solidarity Brothers, and many other books on the Panthers on hand. If they really wanted to deepen their political education, I kept books by Mao Zedong, Lenin, and uh, Karl Marx in my library. As long as I was on the ranch with some brothers who wanted to learn, I was right there to provide them with the reading materials in which they could. 
the biggest mistake for the prison was putting me on a, in a situation where not only could I deepen my own studies, but I also reached the hardcore elements, which was my main target audience anyways. It was one, it was ones that the system considered the worst of the worst. Those were the ones that I knew we had to reach in order for us to have a, any chance at revolution in a country like the U.S. The sacrifices that they were willing to die for in the streets over nonsense had to become sacrifices that they would be willing to make for the revolution. Besides, it was this, this section of the community who everyone wanted to be like in the streets. They had the ability to reach a community that straight-laced community leaders couldn't reach. Once they, once we won this demographic over, we had a chance to win over the streets to the revolution. This was most exemplified by a relationship with my main man, Keon Reynolds, a.k.a. Black. We ran into each other again on the shoe on D East as well. I had seen him since we had first co-founded the Black Liberation Circle in Michigan City. At the time, he was drifting towards the teachings of Morris Science Temple, yet he still was on this Black Panther type of shit. <coughs> like Shango, every time I was around him, he poured through my library like a man with an appetite that couldn't be satiated. He ended up embracing the theory of evolution and atheism just like myself. We discussed bringing a general self-education approach to the brothers in prison. At the time, we were following the political line of Bob Avakey and the Revolutionary Communist Party. They will often publish articles uh, that we wrote for their news uh, paper, Revolution. The prisons in Indiana normally let their books in, but a number of prisons started to ban books by the original Black Panther Party, Malcolm X, Franz Fanon, or, or even Martin Luther King Jr. That tells you what they really uh, feel about Black history is viewed by a lot of prisons as a threat to security. Years later, when Black was released from prison in 2020, uh, 2020, he died of, of an overdose of heroin. His death truly devastated me. There was no other revolutionary I had imbued in my, uh, myself into like I had done him. He was my Bobby Seal. Part of the war on drugs was to rob our communities of the best and brightest potentials. Black was definitely one of them. Rest in power, Conrad. This is one of the reasons why I understand the importance of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. The United States government also knows how important it is to keep this section of our community from becoming revolutionaries or even getting, re getting revolutionaries hooked on drugs. No matter how much they claim to be against the crime and violence in our communities, they would rather we remain criminals than become Martin Luther King's, Malcolm X's, Huey P. News, George Jackson's, Asada Shakur's or Fred Hampton's. This was the true motivation behind the so-called war on drugs, which Michelle Alexander so eloquently pointed out in her eye-opening uh, book she wrote. The nature of the criminal justice system has changed. It is no longer primarily concerned with the prevention and uh, punishment of crime, but rather with the management and control of the dispossessed. Mm -hmm. H.R. Heidemann, who was one of the senior advisors of the Nixon administration, wrote in his diaries that uh, Alexander includes in her book that he, President Nixon, in uh, brackets, <coughs> emphasized that you have to face the fact the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this by not appearing to. 
Thus is how the war on drugs was born. In her book, she illustrates how it was really a backlash against the civil rights movement and black liberation movement of the 1960s and 70s. The uprising and movements that gave birth to, that made the U.S. government tremble. She didn't uh, talk much about the part of the history except as a footnote, but I was aware of the story about the big time drug dealer, Freeway Rick Ross, from watching a number of documentaries about his rise in the drug game. Since Nixon was bogged down in his impeachment, it wasn't until 1982 under Ronald Reagan's presidency that the Republicans were able to roll out this counterinsurgency plan that they had originally designated under the Nixon, uh, designed under the Nixon regime. At this time in the country's history, drug crime was actually damp and not a major problem with Reagan declared the war on drugs. But it was never really about drugs being a problem or not. They needed a way to target the black and brown population for mass incarceration in order to preempt it from rising up like it did during the 1960s. <coughs> if the black and brown men were, <coughs> were incarcerated for selling drugs or strung out by using them, that would destabilize the black and brown communities. How can a population who has lost its warriors to prisons and drug addiction rise up and challenge the system effectively? <coughs> <laughs> this was the rationale behind this policy. Plus, it gave them justification to beef up, beef up and militarize the police forces across the country in order to fight this so-called war. Police departments across the U.S. saw an exponential rise in not only in their recruitment, but also in their budgets. The fact that the drugs was uh, drug crime was low, as we know from the Freeway Rick Ross story, the CIA made this war on drugs appear real by importing cocaine, cocaine into the United States. They used a Nicaraguan guy by the name of Danilio Blandon as Freeway's middleman. This served the U.S. interests on two fronts. The money they were able to amass from flooding black and brown communities with crack cocaine, they were able to fund the war that they were waging against the Democrat, uh, uh, the money they were able to amass from flooding black and brown communities with crack cocaine they were able to fund the war they were waging against the democratically elected government in Nicaragua under Daniel Ortega. They wanted to oust him. In the U.S., this enabled them to carry out their domestic policy of mass incarceration. The war on drugs was the perfect cover to carry out their counterinsurgency against the black and brown communities that H.R. Heidemann said they must do so without appearing to do so. After I read Michelle Alexander's book and watched a number of documentaries about Freeway Rick Ross, I realized just how Machiavellian the government truly is. I wanted to open up the eyes of the brothers that were in prison with me, so I pushed that book hard when I was in prison. I figured if brothers knew uh, how they were playing us as pawns, then maybe they, when they got out of prison, even if they didn't join the revolution, they would at least go back to the communities. Uh, uh, not go back to the community selling drugs and doing their work for them. When I hear people demonize young black men in our communities for living the lives that they lived before being sent away to prison, I point out the true objectives of the so-called war on drugs. They initiated to uh, target our communities. Those that rule over this country are experts of sociology, population control techniques, and shaping public opinion. I often use the example uh, of Frankenstein and the doctor who created Frankenstein. I would ask people who was the biggest threat, the doctor 
or Frankenstein. They would normally think about that for a second and conclude that the doctor was the greatest, uh, biggest threat, since it was he who had given Frankenstein life. Well, it was the same with the brothers and uh, sisters who lost themselves in a drug game. It was the U.S. government who created these Frankensteins in order to devise a way to prevent the po black population from pursuing black liberation. It was a way to arrest their development before they could come to see the Malcolm X of the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm X's, the Huey P. News, the Asada Shakur's, the George Jackson's, and Fred Hampton's in themselves. That form of consciousness was seen as a bigger threat, so they made sure we chose the life of gangsters and drug users over a revolutionary life instead by flooding our community with drugs then locking many of us away when we chose the American dream that was readily available uh, to us in our communities as an American nightmare. They didn't, they didn't make us, they didn't make us turn to drugs, they may claim. But when you take all the beautiful opportunities out of our communities and you assassinate all of our leaders, real leaders who were trying to build unity and solidarity in our community, what do you expect? Again, they are masters of sociology and uh, population control. They knew what the outcome would be. The seven years I was on the shoe, I was, uh, it was my studies in self-education that kept my mind strong and able to resist going crazy. Yeah, I endured numbers of bouts of depression, but I always found a way to bounce back. I figured the best way to get back at them for sending me to the shoe for all those years unjustly was to emerge equipped with the political education and knowledge that would enable me to fight for black liberation fiercely. It was all the time I had spent on the shoe that transformed me into the person I am today. Any questions uh, about uh, what me and how or the film? I know. Y'all most of us. Yeah, asked us all yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, you have any questions? Um, I'll probably think of some later. <laughs> okay. I know I do, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just have introspection dissolved right now. Yeah. Well, uh, hey, at least accomplish what, what we set out to do. Because that's really what this is about, like reflecting. Yeah. You know, looking inside, digging deep, you know, answer those big questions and truths and finding that meaning, you know. Yeah. But uh, I enjoyed, I appreciate y'all coming out yeah. today to this, uh, to this, uh, where are we at? Philadelphia? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like, uh, Baltimore, uh, New Jersey. No, we're in Philadelphia. We're in Philadelphia. We don't, we don't <laughs> uh, Providence. We, it's our day off tomorrow. So, uh, we'll be traveling. But, but we're going to go to where we're going to be at next Providence, uh, Raw Island. Yeah. Reading Community Library, specifically. Yeah. And, and Wednesday, I'll be back in NY. Uh, the day I want to say, yeah, the day after, was that the 29th? The 29th, yeah. Oh, so that's Thursday. Yeah, yeah uh, the people's Wednesday. Farm. It's Thursday? Yeah. No, that's what it's it. Oh, it's Wednesday, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're Shit, I don't know what it is. Just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Because yeah. usually when you say, um, hey, y'all, I'm going to see y'all on Wednesday, and you say that, no, it's the day after, I think it's usually Thursday, right? 
Oh, that's what I said? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's saying the day after their event in Providence, they won the New York. Oh, yeah. uh, see, you see, okay. see, yeah. you, you, you see that? He's the one. Yeah. <laughs> that was Gil. That was Gil. Right? <laughs> I had to bring someone else from John John. Hey, John John, what was the name of this film? <laughs> you know the funny thing is i was gonna bring that up when he came over with the notebook and yeah. it's like what was it and he wrote down what was the name of this documentary and all i could think of was yesterday hey gil <laughs> what was the name of this well i mean speaking of before we uh, wrap up the live stream do you want to talk a little bit about the rainbow coalition or um you know, about, uh, you know, your work or involvement in it. doesn't got to be anything wrong. You want me to or you want me to? You want me to. Why do you want me to? Because I can. What time is it? Yeah, because it's, um, what the six, 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 six. and I left your keys to your, your car and all that home. I just, I don't know. Wait, you, the keys to my car at your house? Oh, my God. That's going to be fun. Um, so, boom, put the photo on your hand. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> good evening, everyone. <laughs> oh, I don't mind addressing, you know what I mean, the world. I have a relationship to, um, let me just start off by saying my name is Galen Tyler. Um, longtime member of the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign. Also, um, founding member of the Poor People's Army, um, which... You know, um, the work that we do is basically deeply rooted in the community, trying to figure out how to reach people that's on the bottom that are having problems, you know, meeting their basic necessities and figure out how we do that as we go through this process of panning for gold, where we're looking for true leaders that's in the community that um, are willing to take the stand. Pretty much, you know what I mean, where Hi and um, Kwame was, you know, leading in reference to their books you know, trying to like get into the community, get the people that are directly affected by it and have them be a, a part of getting out of the solution and not just being sitting back, um, being silent or being part of the problem. And so what we do here, we're a national organization, you know what I mean, that see the connection with um, the Second Rainbow Coalition as very vital at this point in time in history. Just knowing the fact that um, that are, that are people that are out there really trying to cause color lines, trying to um, religious beliefs, sexual preference, you know what I mean, geographical locations for the hillbillies and stuff, you know, like really, no, that was a joke that I, um, <laughs> I don't know last time Just, you know, just regardless of where people are at, you know, trying to meet them and understand that like, you know, living in one of the richest countries in the world, based on where technology is today, you know what I mean, people shouldn't be going without their basic necessities. And so our our mission, you know what I mean, is to try to bring whatever we can to the Second Rainbow Coalition in relationship to like the work that we do in relationship, like I said, to try to help people get food, clothing, housing, healthcare, you know, education, um, divorces, you know what I mean, married, um, buried, you name it. Um, we try to do anything and everything under the sun to help people that are right now that are struggling based on a whole bunch of things that would take, you know what I mean, hours and hours to explain that we're just lumping it into really one real thing, that there are some real strong corporate enemies that are out there, 
you know what I mean, that's oppressing the masses of us. And no longer should we allow a small percentage of the population, you know, to control the masses and have us fight and struggle against each other, you know what I mean, to meet our basic necessities while they just live off um, high off the hog. Um, well, a lot of them don't eat hog no more because they know. Like the wealthy don't eat all the water, um, you know. So you know, we're, we're just trying to figure out how to get into a situation where we create spaces like this to allow people to be able to talk, build, and elevate. You know what I mean? Um, and stand on the shoulders of our ancestors that was fighting and struggling. You know what I mean? Around this, these issues of you know uniting. You know what I mean? The class. And and us looking at this new class that's forming, you know, and trying to unite them as well, and um, and like bring forth, you know, a society that's pretty much just, you know, what I mean, not for just a small, you know, um, select few, but for the masses of us. Either you got anything else to? All power to the people. All power to the people. I guess we're still here.